the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Wine Women Radio Hour, or less than an hour because it's a podcast and we can do a little bit of both there, but I'm Marsha Maycumber and I am here today with Julie Hagler Lumgare, the consulting winemaker for J Moss Wines. She's also been a consulting winemaker for a lot of other brands as well, but she works in the luxury tier area and has won a lot of awards and a lot of uh, wine advocate scores, you know, 90, 95, a little above, a little, you know, a little above, a little below, but but a very interesting background because uh, Julie's also been the senior winemaker for Lake Sonoma Winery, Valley of the Moon, 1863 Reserve. She was also winemaker at Ideology Cellars, um, which has vineyards in Napa and in Russian River Valley. Um, winemaker and partner at Windsor Oak Vineyards and Winery, uh, which she's not associated with anymore, but was for, I think, close to 15 years or something like that. And then, even if you go even further back, Julie was also marketing director for two divisions of Del Monte Foods uh, and running brand management for Bush Brothers, as in Bush Brothers Baked Beans. We all know Bush Brothers Baked Beans and brand management for Procter & Gamble. So, Julie, thank you so much for being here today with Wine Women Radio. Thank you so much. This is a real honor, and I will say, I think... The starting point for my resume that is the full circle I've come to as a winemaker <laughs> is I am a proud East Tennessee fifth generation farm girl. Woohoo! Grew up on a John Deere before I was legal to drive on the street. So I really, really love how it's, although there's been a lot of corporate detours across many, many moons, I think, yeah, this is the life for me. So well, congratulations, Julie. I know uh, that, that's quite years a years have been the best. There, that's terrific to hear, and that's quite a transition actually to go from brand management, Procter and Gamble, uh, up to marketing director for Del Monte Foods, and then jumping into the wine industry. Huge transitions there in your career. Tell us a little bit about the impetus for the changes, because, um, like you said, fifth generation farmer. Fifth generation female farmer, you know, some people kind of go, oh, the equipment is too rough for women. And you and I probably go, nah, not not an issue there. It's exhilarating. Right. And <laughs> and I, really, and I have no idea how much wine there was on the table in Tennessee where you grew up. Um, not much. <laughs> not much. There you go. So tell us a little bit about these transitions and, and what landed you in wine. Well, you're so you're so kind to ask. I think... Four words, less suits, more boots, (laughs) pretty much is the short version of this book. But the long version is I have been extremely fortunate to always be in love with agriculture. I mean, when you grow up farming in a family with that kind of tradition, you watch Mother Nature in the seasons, and I think you take it for granted what you learn and what speaks to your heart. 
and I was always a Tom girl, and yeah. my little sister and I definitely, uh, I was taller than her, so I got to ride the combine <laughs> faster. But oh my goodness. It was definitely exhilarating and empowering as a young woman to be one of three girls, mm-hmm. and mom and dad very much helped us all be our very best. Very cool. And yeah, I was very lucky to, I think there's a lot of disproportionately strong representation of farm kids who end up making it big in corporate America. And I actually, by the time I got hired out of college into Procter & Gamble's brand management program in my little hiring class of 50 (laughs) folks, I felt very much at home because I think about a third of the class, despite all the Wharton and Harvard MBAs and whatnot, a lot of us were from Southern, Midwestern, backgrounds yeah. more rural you know western backgrounds so what were so what were your crops what what did your family grow and work on timber cattle and row crops okay so, yeah a little bit of All everything right. but not wine so but not that, wine. that makes you first generation in the wine business exactly so. and Very i'm going to cool. give all the credit to my husband who's my muse and inspiration Oh, Douglas well, good for you. Uh, Applause. Yes, exactly. Cheers to him. The, uh, basically, the inspiration for me to follow my dream, because when we got engaged, I was entertaining moving from San Francisco, where mm-hmm. I'd run two of Del Monte's six divisions at the time, and that's what had moved me out to the West Coast many years prior. And then I was introduced to this awesome guy who I think was one of the last um, true Western cowboys left, you know, a real oh, gentleman. Wow. A man of few words and many deeds. Just a fantastic fellow. A doer. A doer. Definitely a doer. And yeah, he even offered to move for my career. And I was like, are you kidding? Wow. Are you kidding? Well. No, we're not going back to New York City. We'll be going to Windsor. So <laughs> that's exactly loaded up the truck, sold the Victorian oh, wow. and moved to Windsor. And the rest is history. But I thought I might need to go back despite my, you know, gosh, at that point, 15 years plus uh-huh. of corporate new products development. I'd become a specialist in brand management, which is the CEO track in mergers, acquisitions, uh, base brand management, which means, you know, running flagship brands, usually yes. eight figure budgets and, you know, heavy, big scale, numbers, heavy scale, big teams, millions of cases. So, you know, I'm good at math, but you have to really kind of be good at a, a lot of different yes. things. And I found that despite I had a, a big tool bag, a big tool bag to work from, mm-hmm. I still was a little anxious that I didn't know how to transition to a whole new industry that didn't welcome outsiders at that time. And especially with the one thing I was most comfortable with, which is farming. Not a lot of women grape growers at that point. And yeah, absolutely I, true. I did jump in and volunteer for many, many years, eight years with the grape growers in Sonoma County and myself and one other woman who was a corporate scientist who had hung up her spurs and moved to Sonoma County. We tag teamed and uh, worked along with the wine market council on getting conjunctive labeling for Sonoma County. Cool. Yeah. So there was just, I mean, I so didn't many, know that was no, one of your little pet projects. Well, you know, just volunteerism. Ha- well, heck, I'm a Tennessee volunteer. I went to the University of Tennessee and that's our mascot. But Woo-hoo. volunteerism means a lot to me. And I have consistently found throughout this entire career trajectory that when you put good stuff out in the world and you give it, then the universe just brings good stuff back. And that's how we met. You that know. is right. right. So in for our listeners may not know, we, we go back with a women in wine uh, organization for many, many years. And I, what is it? Eight 
years, maybe more, Whew. that you and maybe I have known 10, each other and, and worked. It could, it could be even 10 years. Uh, and, and so we've crossed paths many, many times and, um, and seen each other at multiple events and running, run events together uh, and all different types of things. And so it's been really interesting for me to see how things have evolved in, in your career as well and, and seeing the wine development for you. Um, one of the things I note, uh, a sign of, of winemakers that I think is very cool but also very challenging is Julie, I've noted since the time I've known you, which, like I said, is, you know, working on a decade at this point, is your time management for winemakers um, is absolutely incredible. So you're you're working while you're driving to a vineyard location or to the winery production location. Um, You are um, dictating um, press releases uh, and um, information for, say, website content and all kinds of things while you're driving. So you keep all of these plates juggling all at the same time. Um, do you know men wine makers who do the same thing, or do you think women juggle more plates and more hats and so forth in the wine industry? You know, this is interesting because, what's the phrase? You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> The big thing I can't tell you what it's like to be is being a dude in the wine industry. There you go. But I will say, in the committees I've served on, which have, I think, some pretty exceptional guys that I've met along the way, such as being on the board at um, Napa Valley Wine Tech, Mm -hmm. or being involved in the IQ Luxury Wine Conference, or serving on the board for the Unified Trade Show, which is, you know, the 15,000-person trade show in Sacramento every year. There are a lot of really impressive folks on all those teams. And I do believe that we're all very good multitaskers. I will say there is perhaps a little bit more of the huggy thing going on with some of us women who are on these committees together. And I think the women who are on these committees Mm -hmm. and these boards that I've been on, tend to have also dipped their hands even as owners in the hospitality side right. more right so that's the only gender specific thread right. that i've seen that is of note otherwise i'll just say we all love science we mm-hmm. all work hard there's definitely kind of a boy scout girl scout you know doing the right thing and trying definitely. to serve the community and i get really excited about that because this industry doesn't work well if people do a what's in it for me mentality you know this is a business built on referrals at the tasting room level and based on camaraderie at the ava level and based on knowledge exchange so it's i don't think it's a good place for selfish people and i want to go back to the farming thing as well so Part of part of what you just said that was really interesting. I, I, you you gave a little introduction to the, these various areas that you volunteer in, and men volunteer plenty too. So they do, which is interesting. So a couple things that came to mind from what you said was, a in the in the Me Too environment that we now live in, I think um, men are a little bit more hesitant or reticent. Um, to get into the huggy feely thing that that women do simply because the environment has shifted, so that's one thing there. And I'm going to have to say, I think you're right, and they're probably right to be aware. Uh, yeah, uh, be aware of it. Uh, yeah, so that's a fair thing there. But you were talking about um, 
this is a community and the wine business is definitely community oriented. Mm-hmm. And um, so you were talking about several points on the consumer end in the tasting room, it behooves you to be able to help your guests in the tasting room who go, I absolutely love these and trying to, f- you know, who else does stuff like you? It always, it always, you know, people think, oh, I don't want to mention my competition. And I always feel as a marketer person, and you're, you have a history as a marketing director. I always feel it's much better to be able to recommend your competition and say, you know, if you really like this flavor profile, you may also really enjoy this winery uh, because they have, um, you know, similar styles, uh, similar results, a similar family environment, um, perhaps all whatever you feel is appealing to that consumer. It makes a big difference towards the goodwill towards them joining your wine club. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that something that you touched on is essential here. Put yourself in their shoes. And when you come up to wine country and you're in a direct tasting room or a wine bar environment, you've already, if you're from out of state, you've spent a lot of time planning this trip and you're very into wine or you wouldn't have decided to take your vacation here. And if you're up from the Bay Area, which, hey, I used to be one of those people too, Mm -hmm. you're still taking it very seriously and you have a plan and you're not just coming to one place. No. That's just not how it works when you're standing in your consumer's shoes. And what that means is you would have to be pretty foolish as a winery owner or a winemaker to think that you're the only gig in town. Yeah. This isn't the problem. Because you're not. There's not just one <laughs> There's date. There's hundreds of wineries yeah, this here. <laughs> is, this is not the problem, and you're not the only date. So if you can't put your ego in the back seat and your common sense in the front seat and make sure that you show the love and your guest right. the respect to help them have the best wine country experience, I mean, people aren't stupid. If they love your wine, they will buy your wine. And if they right. connect with you, you will be connected. Yeah. But you know, they're going to drink other wines. And if you went home to your cellar or my cellar, do you have only one brand in your cellar? (laughs) Yeah, of course I do. Of course not. Of course not. And (laughs) me either. I'm just going to say it. You know, I would have house palate and be the world's worst winemaker if I did. Right. So I think it's a joy to be able to, in a well-informed fashion, if you like X, gosh, what if they like Rhone Whites? Well, first of all, I don't make those, but I certainly know some people who do good ones. Or if they love a Russian River Chardonnay, well, gosh, I do that in Carneros Chardonnays all day long. And I can totally tell you some other people who have amazing, unique vineyard designates or something cool and different going on. And that's going to make certain people very happy. Or maybe they're just looking for a good time in a tasting room with a gorgeous view. Well, guess what? You know, you should be generous. And it, hopefully the other wineries, again, if you put good things out in the universe. They, right. It'll come back to you. Yeah, things come back to you. And if it doesn't, well, shame right. on them and you still did the right thing. So you mentioned something that resonated with me in terms of your knowledge, even though you're not making Rhone wines. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, but, but let, you know, you when you walked in originally um, for this uh, recording... We were, we, we are, and are still drinking this beautiful 2016 rosé of Cabernet Sauvignon from J Moss Wines, and like you said, it has some Rhone characteristics. It has some 
Grenache-like. In other words, this is this is not a heavy, even though this is a Saunier wine. Oh, it's bright, refreshing, you fruit would forward, quaffable. You would never guess this was a Cabernet Sauvignon. You would never guess this. So if you have a guest who this turns out to be their favorite wine when they come for a tasting, they say, where can I get some more of this? Yeah. The important thing is, you and I know from our marketing backgrounds, is you want to be remembered for helping them the best. They are going to remember you because you helped them the most. Yes. So when you know those things... It goes such a long, long way. And the other, the flip side of that from consumers is now when we take people, our listeners behind the scenes, we go, well, how does that play out in the community in terms of vineyard management and growing and harvesting and winemaking? So the things that come to mind to me for that is, well, in terms of growing, sometimes you are a, you're looking for a crew or you're looking for equipment that you don't have mm-hmm. that somebody else you hope will loan to you or rent to you if you need to do that. But your neighbors are crucially important to you to know what's happening in their vineyards as well. So that's a behind the scenes element in terms of vineyard management that's going to go. Um, when it comes to harvest, this is where community is so crucially important. Available crews available bins you know picking bins you know going do you have enough available bins and trucking is probably one of the worst nightmare log jams in the book oh my goodness i can't tell you how beautiful it is to just watch everyone be so kind with trucking and bins and oh my scale just broke can we weigh our fruit at your this place? is crucial you I can't mean, do anything without yeah. the scale way and i you know it comes both ways i mean you'll be in the middle of crushing stuff that came in at dawn and you know sometimes i'll look up in the doorway and be like oh who's that <laughs> and somebody's got bins on a forklift and right? we're like uh that must be one of the 26 neighbors and that's I right guess that means something's going on at their place right? and you know everybody just pulls together right and because everybody's chasing the dream. Every, right. And you don't want to be, what do they say? You know that festival down in uh, Tennessee, Bonnaroo, the music festival? Mm-hmm. They've got this video that I think is really great that you, I think when you buy a ticket, if you're you know, a young, <laughs> idiotic college boy, they're like, don't be that guy. And uh, you know, I think that's a really good philosophy for life. Don't be that right. guy. Don't be the person who takes up all the space and all the yes. oxygen in the room and steps on someone else's space. Yeah. And it's like, help everybody have a good show. Right. So harvest. It comes back to you. Harvest two, three, is four, just four. like a music festival. You know, there's a lot <laughs> a great of analogy. Well, there's a lot of tech going on to make this thing go down. I mean, you know, these things don't just happen with people picking up a guitar in a field. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of technology that it takes to pull off something at scale. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it's just like that at harvest too. There has to be many, many pins that fall into line. And a good winemaker has the clipboard on the car seat, the headset when they drive. If you commute as much as myself or a lot of my fellow brethren, you know, you better <laughs> you better get your scene organized. But, you know, yeah, Murphy's Law kicks in. And yep. that's where having friends and being a good neighbor right. is extraordinarily helpful. Right. You know where I really saw this come into play? When we had those unfortunate fires, and I don't want to dwell on a negative because I've seen it come yeah. into play, like when there was a bumper crop last year, right. too, and people just needed space or needed to get rid of those last few tons. Sure. But 
there's always a new thing right because agriculture and nature you know it's not predictable yes so, like the like the fires yeah and it's, it's incumbent on all of us just like if you're going backpacking with your friends you know hey you know get your big girl pants on bring all your gear carry your own gear get your plan right make sure you're not slowing the group down but be ready to help be prepared right if which was essential up, with the prepared. fires and during the fires everybody helped and shared to protect land property uh, other humans, other livestock, all yep. of those things. So it relocating was all part of the things as much as possible out of harm's way. Generators, yeah. Yeah. sharing glycol, you name it. The earthquake was another great example. Yes. I mean, I was bringing resources down from the Russian River to Oak Knoll during right. the earthquake because there wasn't enough glycol to refill the lines that broke in the county. Yeah, scary stuff. Talk a little bit how that plays a role in winemaking and wine production because I don't know I don't know that much about it so oh about um, glycol oh oh that's just the chilling mechanism for Thank example you. if you've got a cooling system yeah. there were some antiquated technologies which are not as safe and appropriate right. you know way back but in not the everybody day. can uh, not everybody can afford to upgrade their equipment to the latest and greatest right every but, few you know, years. put it this way I sure don't want to see some stuff from the food business like ammonia based systems in wine country but <laughs> glycol is a wonderful um, tool because you can chill it down below where the water would have a freezing point mm -hmm. and therefore when you pump this you know safe and non-reactive relative to other sorts right. of cooling systems right. when you pump that through lines and into the jackets which are the little thin liners around mm -hmm. you know wine tanks, tanks and whatnot you can actually get a lot more cooling capacity because it can be super chilled for example, I would set my chiller at 28 Fahrenheit. Okay. And it's just free flowing through the lines, no problem. And that means if you have something come in hot and you want it cold, it's just you can good do it quickly. Good physics, yeah. heat, heat exchange. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, you know that old trick in college everybody learns with icing the beer cooler with some sea salt? <laughs> you think about it, salt water can be colder than tap That's water. That's right. So. You know, this is better than the beer cooler in college. There you go. But again, you hopefully know, almost everything is better than the beer cooler in college. <laughs> physics is a good thing. And yes, you know, with a farming background, you know, what can't be fixed with duct tape and a little bit of common sense physics. Most things in a winery can be can be fixed with a lot of uh, Girl Scout know-how. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Very, very cool stuff. So right now we are tasting through the J Moss wines for, for which you are the consulting winemaker. We've been doing the 2016 Rosé of Cabernet Sauvignon mm -hmm. Napa Valley, which is a blend from multiple vineyards, but it is a, a, a Saunier Rosé. It's delicious. It's, it's completely quaffable. So if in the dead of summer you're needing a really cold Rosé or even one that's a, you know, a little bit closer to, you know, not, really really cold um it's really bright acidic refreshing uh, it's got this beautiful apricot peachy salmon coloring to it which is just stunning to it um and the fruit is all right up front um so for those who find so those who find white wines maybe are a little too light them and they want something with a little bit more fruit flavor this is absolutely the way to go 
um, if you're a white lover but with lighter stuff. Um, definitely go with this. But then we have this wonderful horizontal and vertical. Um, I'll let you explain that a little bit. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignons that we're tasting through from Jay Moss uh, from the 2013 and 2014 vintages mm-hmm. um, that have a whole lot of fruit to it. And what we haven't talked about is how you actually connected up with Jay Moss wines. So give us a little bit more of a background about how that connection occurred for you. And and you started with their Chardonnay mm-hmm. uh, consulting on that. So how did that all happen? Well, back to that sense of community. Yay. We had shared a mentor and didn't even know it, but Gustavo Brambia, whose son, Brendan Brambia, had graduated Cal Poly, went to work for myself and my husband at Windsor Oaks right out of school as our viticulturalist. And that was back in, it was 2005 or six. I oh, think wow. It was 2006. All right. And long story short, the beautiful Stephenson Vineyard from Coombsville that you're drinking in glasses mm-hmm. one and three. Uh, Brendan now has been farming those on the side for many, many years. And Gustavo was a mentor to myself early right. in my days when Brendan was still working for Douglas and myself. And then he was also mentoring James, who was right across oh the street in the Crusher District. And nobody knew any of this <sighs> until Brendan mentioned to James' friend that who was looking for great Chardonnay and Pinot in the Russian River Valley that they ought to go over to Windsor Oaks and pick some up. And check some out. And that was and, you. Uh, I was selling all the fruit for Windsor Oaks. Right. For eight years, as well as making the wine and, and, and. So uh, my husband and I were tag teaming in the vineyard. He's the vineyard manager. I was selling all the fruit. I'm a farmer. And I was definitely the right person to do lots of trials and show all the 35 winemakers we would sell fruit to all these amazing trials and therefore sell the fruit for more money, but more value being created for people. And yeah, voila, uh, James's buddy was vineyard designating our stuff. And when he came over to pick up all of the fruit, he realized, he's like, hey, Julie, can you make me some Chardonnay? Because for different winemaker dinners, here's a big red guy who's not making white wine. Right. This is very common, too. But sometimes you need a white wine to open the show. That's right. So for two years. It's the warm-up act. Yeah. So for (laughs) for two years, you know, after all these introductions were made through shared connections, Mm -hmm. I would make him Russian River Valley Chardonnay from Windsor Oaks Vineyards. And I would simply take my reserve tier and cut him into the middle of the run and then keep on bottling. And from there, when uh, when we were bought out by our partners... I got invited over with Douglas for a barbecue, and James mentioned that he and Janet in the first 10 years had taken it as far as uh-huh. they could, and if we teamed up, we wanted to take it higher, and the rest is history. All those other clients and assignments between Italy, Napa, all the things I've done, right. I've always been working for Jay Moss the entire way through wow. while I do all my other projects, because you don't leave your wingman, so there you go. We do a good job together. We definitely know where the J-Moss style is. And I'm really proud that we've been able to, I think, produce some lovely wines that folks are enjoying. And the critics seem to consistently be enjoying the wines as well. And They do. We feel very honored and humbled by that. But, yeah, it all goes back to the neighborhood and the friends. Yeah, it sure does. There and you go. I was going to say... 
That was a form of informal networking that really paid off making all those connections and then continuing it to to nurture yeah you know the relationships really really pays off what did do you feel like it took a bit of time maybe subconsciously for it like all to click together and go you know we should we should make this a bit more formal of an arrangement <laughs> well it was really funny it worked so well for white for two years and it just it felt very natural once we brainstormed over dinner mm -hmm. about how we could, you know, because at that point the recession was ending, they had their own facility. I had certainly been running my own facility for eight years and had custom crush seven different clients plus our own brand. And I thought that, you know, we could bring a lot of shared purpose and shared knowledge. And yeah, I think two brains are always better than one. Two palettes are better than one. That's right. I feel like it's a very effective tag team and we play each other's strengths. But I do that with each client is different. And when I work with a client, the bottom line is I just want to be happy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's, you know, that's just, it's the right thing right. to do. And everyone gets happy a different way. That's right. So, you know, that's a really important and different thing from being a winemaker is as a consulting winemaker, I have to always start wearing my Procter & Gamble hat going, what is this brand about? What makes this owner happy? Yeah. And then from there we do. You build it. Yeah, we do a good job, hopefully. That's very cool. Yeah. So you're addressing an interesting issue. So part of Wine Women's mission, of course, is championing women in the wine industry. Of course, you fit into that category very perfectly. Um, and helping them accelerate their careers in the wine industry. And you and I have talked offline off and on about some people who do or don't click with us and make things happen and the mysteries of why mm, things sometimes go a bit sideways in a relationship, which is, and I mean a business relationship, um, where, you know, you, you may be making wine for them for a while, but then the priorities seem to change and you find you need to take a new direction. Um, what do you what do you want to advise some of the women who are listening to this podcast about what what are some of the things that key moments in your own career where suddenly you know the light bulb has got something has informed you instinctively aha we need to go in a fresh direction here whether or not it's with or without the current company that you're making wine for what are kind of what are kind of the signals that you listen for that tell you it's time for change? Well, a couple of things, and you know this goes back to signals learned long before I ever got into the wine business. But thinking that I was at a big stable company that was promote from within, but highly competitive, Procter and Gamble had an upper out syndrome, and I worked on the mergers teams right. there. So talk about tumultuous yeah and then worked you know in upper out environments and mergers teams for the rest of my career in packaged goods and food and i i learned really quickly one thing financial distress or financial pressure in a company uh -huh. no matter your best efforts you have to realize business is business personal is personal right but any signs of financial stress you can't take changes that are made in organization based on financial distress. If you try to internalize that and take it personally, you'll drive yourself crazy for the rest of your life. Oh, isn't that the truth? Yeah. And you know, 
again, being on mergers teams, you know, you just, th that knife mm -hmm. cuts so many directions. And you just, people need to be change resilient. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, let's face facts. You always need to be branching out and helping others because don't be that guy. Remember that comment about don't be that guy? <laughs> yes. Don't be that guy who never did anybody who, a favor. Who won't help. <laughs> who never did anybody a favor and yeah. then all of a sudden is out trying to network. Right. And it's like. And everybody's, and then everybody's going to turn their back on them. Yeah. Because so there was the, no help to begin as with. As they say, so. you know, um, perhaps the biggest advice I can give about women specifically being successful in this business. Mm -hmm. Be a giver. Don't be a taker. Okay. You definitely have the heart of a servant. Keep your ego in the back seat. Good advice. Do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Which sounds so... That also means being able to list, live with yourself. And it sounds so trite. Honestly, that sounds like, you know, I sound like I'm reciting a kindergarten manual here. But it's kind of hard to live by some of these rules. But in particular, do the right thing. Uh, yeah. That's a hard one sometimes. Yeah. Because... You know, you just don't know. Business is complicated, but it's really important, you know, and also trying not to talk about people out of turn, because if you don't want to see it in the Internet age printed on a billboard on Highway 29, probably better that you just don't say it. <laughs> there you go. But there's, um, yeah. And also just realizing that doing right by people and being kind to people and treating your customers well and staying up that extra hour at night when you're so darn tired and harvest, you just, you know, wish you could yes. sleep in the car. Yeah. But that's also one of the biggest sales seasons of the year. So I would say to anyone who's serious on the production side or on any other function in the wine business, always get close to the customer. Some people want to like get away from the tasting room and get away from the wine club and get away from the trade and get away from the customer. And it's the dumbest thing you can do. Yeah. Because if you are connected to the customer, then not only do you have amazing knowledge of where you need to be going next, especially if you're upstream like mm -hmm. production is, but it also makes you more valuable to the organization you're working for. So keywords. Yeah. For people who want to have their little fiefdom or not be bothered by having to do the extra thing, I think it's short sighted because then inevitably you know we have recessions we have boom times but when cuts are made or when you get too senior and things are top heavy if yeah. you're known for being a rainmaker you are so much more valuable oh yes then if you are just the person who's a fantastic winemaker and order giver but that's a cost on a balance mm -hmm. sheet it's not a revenue line right so I'm always stunned when I hear people say they don't want to go on market visits. I mean, yeah, I don't really love clearance security in Oakland Airport or anything like that. <laughs> oh, hair is even worse coming home. But if you don't like going to market and helping move those cases through and talking with integrity about what you do and what you're contributing to an organization, then, you know, you're really not doing your job. Yeah. So... I realize that that's not everyone's cup of tea, but I do think that you need to make yourself broader than average in your role to bring real value. And it's important to make your client or your company money. Yes, it is. Just saying. So uh, th that brings me back to, you've mentioned, you know, balance sheet, your background in mergers and acquisitions with the Procter & Gamble team. Mm -hmm. This is a little, little bit unusual. You know, winemakers have come to their 
that role in life from many, many different backgrounds. But you are one of the few I know who's come from to it from more of a, a monetary, a financial understanding background. Um, when you made the shift from um, big company Procter & Gamble, D- Del Monte Foods, um, into winemaking, tell us a little bit about what you found out, your background in being able to read a balance sheet. Um, which I know if you worked in mergers and ac- acquisitions, you had to be able to read a financial statement and a balance sheet and all those elements really, really well. Wh- what kind of a role do you think that your understanding of the finance side played into your success? I think it's essential because remember I said the worst place you can be is on a ship that is floundering (laughs) yeah Uh, you have to understand a balance sheet and understand top line bottom line and margins to realize if you can make a difference somewhere and i'm always surprised by people you know who are wanting mentoring or maybe want to you know bounce around career talk and they're younger and it's all about i need to get a raise and i deserve a raise because i need a house and i need it's like what you need has nothing to do with what the company right. can It doesn't interest them whatsoever. Can or should do. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just gobsmacking to me because I, I can't even fathom how, if you don't know how to read the bigger picture for whom you're working for, how can you understand if you deliver value? Yeah. And I guess... I grew up on a family farm that also had the Wall Street Journal delivered to the last house at the end of the road. Magic. Well, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I mean, not all farmers are stupid. I'd say, you know, the family was a fifth generation farm because they were careful with their money. And it doesn't mean there's always tons of money flowing. In farming, you can have four drought years in a row, as we well know now in California. But that happened to my family when we were in high school. Right. And yeah, you know, so you go out and get a side hustle. So, you know, you get a job. And I think it's really important to understand the basics. Like if you're in junior high and can't balance a checkbook, you're already behind. Yes. And they don't, and it's and if not kids, a core curriculum yeah, item for If your for kids schools. get out of high school and don't have their own checking account and let alone can't balance it, then they're set up to fail because they yeah. don't have any perspective on life. Right. And you just, you need to be able to count and you need to be able to be counted as someone who brings value and that sounds mm-hmm. perhaps a touch preachy, but it's basic math. You know, nobody runs a business as a charity. Charities run as charities. Yeah. So you just you have to be able to add more value by being there than if you were gone. What money would turn up if you were absent yeah. tomorrow and they were willing to double down and do the yeah. work themselves? And I will say I'm a big believer in the power of the team. But yeah, I think also open book management is really important. I've worked for organizations that were open book and closed book. And if you don't tell your employees the numbers and the progress, then you're not going to be giving them the tools they need to be creative and help you thrive. And everybody's got a different point of view on showing the money to people who work for them. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's just like walking around your bathing suit. I mean, oh, my God. (laughs) But... Interesting analogy. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> it could get worse. But oh my you know, the bottom line is you have to decide what you can and disclose. But without measuring key performance indicators and working with a team 
about where's the win and what's the most important thing. Yeah. It's really hard to help people help you. Yeah. I always say, if you tell me where the bullseye is, I can hit it. But you know, if you're, if you're keeping it all so close to the vest that people are guessing, yeah, then they're not wrong for guessing wrong. No, of course not. Because you know, what if in fact selling, you know, full cases of product or, you know, versus selling red versus white versus signing people up for the club was so much more valuable than just selling whatever, you know, you needed to deplete in your inventory. I mean, you have no idea until an owner tells you what's really going to make the biggest difference. The same thing in winemaking. Sure. You know, so you just, you need to be creative, but you need to be resourceful. Exactly. Anyway, I think that it's just you know, financial literacy at all levels is really important. And it's why in organizations you and I have both participated in cross-functionally, I yeah. think, you know, how many times have you and I, either one of us, put on a financial literacy cross-functional seminar? Yeah. And I think it's because we understand yeah. it does make a difference. It does. It certainly does. And this has been really fascinating to to learn about all of these elements to it and what makes it successful. Matter of fact, okay, you're hearing the phone ring because we're in the back tasting room. I should mention this because uh, we can't do anything about the phone ringing. We are enjoying this lovely flight of J Moss wines here at the panel wine lounge and espresso bar for our listeners who aren't familiar and who, who may be coming to visit and checking it out. The panel wine lounge and espresso bar is here at 535 West Napa Street here in Sonoma. They're open Tuesdays through Fridays from 3 to 9 p.m. and on Saturday from noon to 9 p.m. The panel is this adorable house. It's literally a house that's been converted for commercial use as this wine bar and lounge. And they have all of these cute little seating areas um, where you can kick back and enjoy your wine. We're actually recording here in the wine lounge loft in the back of the building. Um, the panel is a public wine lounge serving wines by the glass. They also have draft beer. So if somebody you're coming with is not a wine drinker, but is in point of fact a beer drinker or an espresso drinker, um, you can do that as well. They also have a small event menu for unique European style space and a distinctive global wine shop featuring West Coast wines, as well as wines from France, Italy, Germany, Austria, Portugal, Australia, Chile, New Zealand, and points beyond, although I'm really not sure what goes on beyond New Zealand. That's kind of the end to me, so to speak. Um, and they have a very cool wine club. So for listeners, you may want to go to panelwines.com to learn more about other delicious selections and options that are available here. And I want to thank you, Julie, for bringing these fabulous J Moss wines. We've been enjoying the 2016 Rosé of Cabernet Sauvignon, but also this horizontal and vertical tasting from single vineyard designates that are all J Moss wines that range up and down from different AVAs all across the Sonoma Valley, oh, which is pretty Napa cool. Valley. Yeah, so we have Stevenson Vineyard, which is in Coombsville, which is right 
to the east of downtown Napa in the city. We also have the 2013 Spicer Vineyard in the Stag's Leap District, um, which gets a lot of heat and a lot of stress because of all the volcanic rock there, which is very cool. And then looking at the vertical aspect, we have the 2014 Stephenson Cabernet Sauvignon. And then stepping up to Rutherford, which is a little further north from there as well, the 2014 Me Lane Rutherford Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. They've all evolved so interestingly over the show. Uh, the, the blue fruit from Coombsville, from the Stephenson Vineyard, has really stood out to me and really um, softened everything so much um, with the 2013, which I find really cool. Um, I wanted to ask you at home, when you're pulling out your own personal stash of JMOS, what do you pair with all of these? What do you like to pair with the 13s and the 14s? Which, what are your choices? Okay, well, um, I think because of the fantastic acid and closer aspect of Stephenson Vineyard in Coombsville to the bay, that JMOS single vineyard designate which I've worked on in the 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 vintages. Woohoo! I got to tell you, it's very consistent for holding a brilliant acid profile, a more subdued alcohol, incredible wine of balance. I use it across the foods that usually would like a more robust Russian River or Mm -hmm. Santa Barbara or Central Otago Pinot Noir. Oh, wow. all the way up into the Cabernet favorites. So, of course, I mean, who doesn't love it with prime rib and ribeye and all the usual suspects? However, think anything here with tomato in the sauce. Oh, my goodness. Because acid loves acid from a food pairing standpoint. And when I think about my homemade lasagna recipe, cassoulet, anything with an acid-driven sauce. Spaghetti. Oh, my God. Easy. Talk about making spaghetti night special. So the Stephenson from Coombsville for J Moss is just, I call it the chef psalm darling. It and sure is. Anything that would work from Pinot Noir uh-huh. all the way up to Cabernet, that is just a fantastic pairing. Lots of and stews. A, oh my gosh, and incredible with pork. If, if I had to pick one of our Cabernets that was just the barbecue and pork darling, that wine That's just it. really, especially with a vinegar-based sauce. Oh, yes. So then I think about, okay, now let's get into the heavy hitting AVAs, getting a little bit further up Valley, Stag's Leap District. Yep. Okay. Old Vine Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, amazing field blend clones, just incredible intensity and focus. And there's a reason that this wine got all the accolades that it did. And it's just, you know, if you just want to sit by the fireplace and have this ridiculously iconic glass of darn that's napa cab and boy that tastes good you know this thing just wraps you in a little velvet blanket but if you want to pair it with something you can take this all the way up into big game yes you think about how this would go bison burger all the way (laughs) you know from again the classics every type of meat that you can imagine but then pushing it further into the stronger flavors Mm -hmm. of game it's a big, dark, black, opulent, really fine-grained, smooth tannins. 
So anything with a reduction sauce. Oh, yes. It also would work well with barbecue, but I think that might be too much complexity with too much complexity. Yes. That's why I like something that's more acid-driven, like the Stephenson Coombsville mm -hmm. with barbecue. And then I'm moving into more of a straight presentation of a sauced meat with that stag's leap and something that has a lot more substance. Can I also mention yeah. blue cheese? Oh, dear Lord, that would be fantastic. <laughs> you Brilliant. know, so if you're doing, even if you were doing um, uh, a pear and, and candied walnut with blue cheese oh, salad, think about this a would be magnificent. A gorgonzola sauce on your gorgonzola. steak. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. That yes. would... Perfect. That completely would work. This is the Spicer Vineyard that we're yeah, talking about right now. The 2013. Yeah, oh, just delicious. A gorgeous wine. And then moving on into the 2014 Me Lane, which is the beginning of an ongoing series of our Rutherford wines. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Again, big, bold, huge frame on that wine. Yeah. You know, Rutherford dust, big structure. And it's going to age seven. for years and years. It's a big boy. It really is. It is just this really fundamentally big structured wine. Again, if you want a bold, Texas-sized sipping glass of Cabernet, since James is from Texas. I yeah, gotta, it matches. Got to give a little <laughs> bit of love to Texas here. But, you know, if you're going down to Texas and you just want to have a big glass of cab, this is absolutely the classic steakhouse Cabernet. Great. Now, that doesn't mean it won't adorable with a big pork Love chop them. as well. But, yeah, I mean, you every, filet mignon. every easy, cut easy in enough. the steakhouse. And also, you think about the sides, the classic cream spinach, the Brussels sprouts. Any of these greens that you would put a sprinkle of lemon and dash that acid. Yeah, shard. Exactly. Something, Even collard greens. Yes, exactly, with that dash of vinegar mm -hmm. and acid. And then you counter it with this robust, rich, very plush textured and extended finish Cabernet. And you won't get the bitterness from the greens, but you'll get the fat from the steak in your clothes it'll be cutting the acid it'll be you know helping you balance out some of that almost right. pleasing umami and bitterness with the greens it's just it's a really good steak and the other cab. i was going to say in addition to the steaks um the other things that came to mind that have the fat content yeah would be a simple tri-tip not oh, an overdose a tri-tip and even now this is going to be a little funky skirt steaks Oh, because with the rub? have the, the uh, with a rub, but they also have a fairly high fat content to yeah. them. And so this really stands up and and just pairs absolutely beautifully with them. So And truthfully, I like it with some roasted vegetables. Like, you know, if you smoke roast anything like, you know, eggplant, cauliflower, some of the more standalone Even legumes. Mush mushrooms. Mm -hmm. the, whole the center of the plate style vegetarian you know, doesn't mean you have to drink wimpy wine. Yeah. And, you know, when we want to have a meatless meal, this can bring so much fullness to a plate of roasted veg, and it complements the roasted elements, the caramelization that you can get, especially with roasted root vegetables. Yeah. This wine is just a winner with roasted root vegetables. We didn't even get to talk about your barrel regimen and all that since you mentioned caramelization. So they're all very nice. <laughs> they're all very nice. And you they're know. all, you know, French oak. It's definitely, you know, it's a balanced program. It's not a recipe. You know, you work very hard to match the vintage to the oak. And we have moved away from having any American oak in the profile except about 2%. There are a couple of little special sauce barrels that we have custom identified 
perhaps I won't call them out with a name check. That's okay. But I will say we've put a lot of effort and there's only one vineyard out of our entire portfolio that actually works with that little snippet of a very special right. cooped medium long toasted American oak. Everything else has 100% French mm -hmm. and lots of different matching the toast and profile to the vineyard and vintage. In fact, we were featured at the um, IQ, which is Innovation and Quality Conference mm -hmm. for Luxury Winemaking a couple years ago. We actually showed a trial, which went through the process of trying to match <laughs> with the new Rutherford Vineyard that we were breaking oh my in and trying to figure out what to do with this half of the vineyard versus the other half, where we saw a sensory profile shift in the vineyard. We did a little... Um, oak profile matching trial that we displayed for our peers at that conference. Oh, that that's a whole nother show that we're going to have to have you back for Julie to, to, to talk about that because, um, oak programs, barrel programs are a whole different world onto themselves. And there's so many options that you have. And, and the way I think of it, and I don't, I don't know if it's the same for you is that for winemakers, this is your spice box. It and, is. And like, like a, a great executive chef, it's, it's not something that you follow a recipe for. It's something where you take your fingers and you, you grab little handfuls of each one because you know instinctively from experience what the right mix is for the ingredients that are right in front of you. You know, there's an acronym, ABT, always be tasting. <laughs> there you go. I definitely take every opportunity to taste with my peers wine, especially in Napa and in vineyards contingent to those that we work in and vintage over vintage, take a lot of notes. But yeah, trialing, whether it's your oak or something else is important. And I do want to mention, maybe we'll put up a hot link because it's a topic that's too big. Mm -hmm. But, um, I asked a colleague of mine to help me co-write an article on how to do vineyard and winemaking trials, which is the cover feature for Wine Business Monthly's May 2019 mm -hmm. issue. Right. And I think we should just hot link to that. If people are on the production side, maybe listening and, you know, wanting to think a little bit more about the scope of trials and some of the best practices, you just, you always have to be making yourself better. It's absolutely true. And speaking of making it better, we're going to make everybody feel better because we're just about out of time. So I want to make sure we will make sure that we get the Wine Business Monthly link in uh, with the podcast. But also um, your Instagram handle is oh, at Julie Lumgare, J-U-L-I-E. L-U-M is in Mary, G-A-I-R. All right. And of course, you can find her also at LinkedIn. Yeah. And you're on Facebook too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. I am. All right. So there's multiple places to find you. And then, of course, the wines, jmosswines.com. Really great place to find that. They are open by appointment only in, it's technically south of the town of Napa, but uh, in the Crusher District in Napa where you can enjoy those. So Julie, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you bringing honor. this beautiful wines. And thank you. Thanks to James and the whole Moss family for sharing these beautiful wines with us. And what well, did you want to add? I wanted to say cheers and thank you to wine women for doing what you do and all the different guests on these podcasts. I enjoy listening to them and I hope other people will and looking forward to staying in touch. Fantastic. Cheers. Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. We'll be back next time with another episode of Wine Women Radio.